Hey, moms and dads. This episode is kid-friendly. This episode is kid-friendly. For creatures like me. Who are you <laughs> When you're alive, life can be fun. Go to the forest where the shadows do run. They're coming soon. They can hear you. And we are Paranormal Chicks. And this is our first kid-friendly episode of the 31 Nights of Halloween. And we are super excited that you and all your little creepsters are here to hear them. Here and here. Here, here. (laughs) But these episodes are going to be different because they are just for the kids. So there's not going to be any commentary. There's not going to be any, you know, unfriendly kid words. Uh Uh-huh. Because we have no money for the swear jar, so... You know. So kids, sit back, relax, and prepare to get spooked. This story is Classroom 202 out of the Scary Stories for a Fright in the Night book by S.L. Clater. Every kid in town knew that the second floor of the old two-story school was haunted. We all knew the story of the fire that had destroyed the upper level of the building 40 years earlier, killing Bimmon Miller a science teacher who taught in classroom 202. There was even a rhyme that had been passed down since the time of the fire. Stay out of classroom 202, or Mr. Miller will get you. If you step beyond the door, you'll disappear forevermore. It was Friday, October 13th, the anniversary of the fire, and a lot of kids were talking about the old urban legend. Melanie, who sat in the lunchroom with her friends, did not believe in ghosts, and she certainly did not believe that the second floor of the old school building was haunted. I wonder why they never rebuilt the second floor. Lori poked at her unappealing lunch. They used the first floor for the school office, but the second floor has been sealed off for 40 years. Don't you find that strange? My dad told me about Mr. Miller, remembering him from his old school days. When he attended school here 40 years ago, he said Mr. Miller had wild black hair and always wore a white lab coat. Everyone said he was a genius scientist, and he was rumored to have been working on some bizarre experiment before the fire. James shared what he knew. Something to do with creating matter. Yeah, I heard that too. Their friend Brad sat down at the table. The principal fired him when he found out he was performing dangerous experiments here at school. I guess Mr. Miller was getting revenge when he burnt the school down, James concluded, and he died in the process. But his body was never found. Brad's brow arched high as he widened his eyes. Spooky, if you ask me. I don't believe any of it, Melanie scoffed. So you'd go up there? You'd look in classroom 202. 
Brad put her on the spot. If I dared you? No, Lori protested. Don't do it. Over the years, any kid who ever dared go up there was never seen again. That's why it sealed off, like the rhyme says. Stay out of classroom 202 or Mr. Miller will get you. If you step beyond the door, you'll disappear forevermore. I told you, Lori, I don't believe any of it. Melanie refused to be swayed from her fixed opinion. It's just an urban legend. My dad said the only person to ever go up there and actually return is now in a psych ward. After opening the door to classroom 202, he went crazy and now continually repeats the rhyme. They said he just mumbles it over and over again, James told them. Sorry guys, like I said, I just don't believe any of it. Melanie stood up with her food tray in hand. I'd accept your dare, Brad, if there was a way to get up there, but it's locked up tight. I can get the key. Brad's lips stretched into a cunning grin. The only person in the office right now is Mrs. Beachley, and getting around her is a piece of cake. Okay, Melanie said. If you get the key, you've got a dare. Meet me in front of the old building in ten minutes. Brad gathered his things and darted away. Ten minutes later, Melanie, James, and Lori found Brad waiting for them by the entrance of the supposedly haunted schoolhouse. I told you getting the key would be a piece of cake. He proudly dangled the key in front of him before handing it to Melanie. But how will I know if you actually open the door to classroom 202? I'll go with you, Melanie, James offered. I'll be your witness. Are you sure? Melanie didn't want to get him into trouble. I want to, he assured her. I want to see what's up there. He pushed open the door leading into the building. Let's go. Be careful sneaking past the office, Brad warned his friends. Mrs. Beachley was sitting at the front counter a few minutes ago. Melanie nodded and her and James slipped, unseen, past the downstairs office and stealthily maneuvered around the roped-off staircase. Easing up the stairs to the second floor, they came to a locked door at the top of the landing. I sure hope this is the right key. Melanie placed it into the lock and turned it, hearing a click. Without warning, the door swung open and an icy burst of air struck them with biting force. What was that? James hesitated to step beyond the door. This is creepy. You can't chicken out on me. Melanie grabbed his hand and pulled him through the doorway and into the upstairs hallway. You're my witness. You have to see me open the door. Forging ahead, Melanie pulled James past the first door marked Classroom 200, releasing his hand as they eased along the cold, stuffy hallway. Classroom 201, she whispered as she passed the second door. The next door should be 202. I can't believe I volunteered for this. James, who had yet to pass Classroom 201, had slowed to a halt. This is it. Melanie stopped at the third door. Classroom 202. This is as far as I go. James clung to the wall. I'm not getting any closer. Melanie reached for the doorknob and slowly turned it, pausing mid-turn when she heard a faint, ghostly voice say, Stay out of Classroom 202, or Mr. Miller will get you. If you step beyond the door, you'll disappear 
forevermore. Melanie looked at James. Did you hear that? James nodded, his eyes wide with fright. This floor is really haunted. Please, Melanie, don't open the door. There has to be a logical explanation, she told him. I bet Brad is up here right now trying to scare us. He's probably getting a good laugh at our expense. I bet he came up the fire escape. She continued to turn the doorknob. But it's not going to work, Brad, because I don't believe in ghosts. With those five words, she thrust the door open and stepped into classroom 202. Melanie, what do you see? James called out, but she did not respond. Melanie? He mustered all his courage, rushed to the door, and peered inside. No! He gripped the edge of the door jamb to keep from being pulled into a spiraling vortex. Classroom 202 was a doorway to another realm of existence. And within the spiraling mass of energy, James saw Melanie being dragged to a desk by a man with wild black hair and wearing a white lab coat. It was Mr. Miller, and he had Melanie. Melanie! James cried out, drawing the attention of several hollow-eyed kids trapped along with Melanie in the classroom beyond the vortex. Petrified, his body fell numb when the ghostly kids, all staring directly at him, began chanting the Classroom 202 rhyme. Stay out of Classroom 202 or Mr. Miller will get you. If you step beyond the door, you'll disappear forevermore. As the vortex started to close, the last thing James saw before letting go of the door jam and running for his life was a final glimpse of Melanie. He would never forget her hollow eyes and dead stare, a sight that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Downstairs, Lori and Brad intercepted James as he fled the building, eager for an update. But when they questioned him about Melanie and the haunted second floor, all he could say was, Stay out of classroom 202, or Mr. Miller will get you. If you step beyond the door, you'll disappear forevermore. The next one is from a book called Ghost, 13 Haunting Tales to Tell. This story is called Reflection by Jesse Refson and illustrated by Chris Sasaki. Rain whipped at Catherine Halton's window as she huddled frightened in her bed. Though the power was out and the wind howled fiercely outside, Catherine's fear was not from the storm. It was from a single, methodical noise that punctuated the room. The insistent tap of a finger on glass. Not from her window, from her mirror. Tap, tap, tap. The room was dark, but there was just enough light for Catherine to distinguish the gleam of the looking glass across the room. There, she could make out a faint movement just her reflection. She reached for the glass on her nightstand, hoping the water would calm her shaky nerves. But at that same instant, a crack of lightning filled the sky. In a momentary flash, Catherine caught a glimpse of her reflection. This time, glaring out from the surface of the glass, its grin stretched wide with malice. Catherine dropped the glass in fright. It shattered against the room's aged oak floorboards, and water cut a jagged puddle across the floor. 
dark as blood in the dim room. Catherine silently cursed as she ran to her bathroom for a towel. She was careful to avoid the bathroom mirror, but she couldn't help catching the erratic movement of her reflection in the corner of her eye, beckoning her to look back. As she hurried to her bed, the same insistent tapping followed her from the bathroom. Tap, tap, tap. Catherine moved quickly to sop up the spill, but even here she found her reflection staring back menacingly from the dark pool of water. Catherine tossed the towel down to cover it. She'd never before realized how unavoidable her own reflection was. Mirrors, glass, water. There was no escape from the dark double wordlessly stalking her while the storm raged outside. What did it want? Tap, tap, tap. The noise floated to Catherine across the deep shadows of the room in response. There was no way around it. She took a deep breath and looked up at the full-length mirror opposite her bed. Her reflection loomed in the glass, almost ghostly pale in the dim moonlight. It crooked a finger at her, motioning her over. It dawned on Catherine that the only peace she'd find that night would be in doing as it wanted. She walked slowly across the room, the floorboards creaking under her weight. The storm pelted the window in a torrent of rain. Up close, Catherine's reflection was identical to her, except for the sinister look on its face. It was deeply unnerving. Catherine thought of all the times she'd examined her reflection, unaware that it might be staring back at her. The reflection brought her back from the unsettling train of thought as it pantomimed touching its finger to the glass. It wanted her to tap the mirror. At Catherine's hesitation, a clap of thunder drew her attention to the window. Her reflection was there as well, staring out from the glass pane, a reminder that there was no escape. Catherine made up her mind and slowly raised her trembling hand. The reflection nodded approvingly as Catherine's finger struck the cold mirror. Wind poured insistently against the side of the old house, as if trying to draw Catherine's attention too. The reflection stared. Catherine brought her finger down again. Tap. The storm outside intensified, the sky splitting wide to bleed its contents down against Catherine's window. Perhaps it was her imagination, but it seemed her reflection licked its lips in anticipation of her finger contacting the glass one last time. Catherine brought her finger down. Tap. Lightning cracked, giving Catherine one last look at the deep hunger stretched across her reflection's face. Then, as quickly as it had come, the light vanished. The next morning, the rain had given way to sunlight, now filtering warmly into the room. A slender, brown-haired girl slept peacefully in the bed. But Catherine, hoarse from screaming through the long, dark night was not at rest. Though her fists were bruised and bloodied, she pounded hopelessly on the thick surface of the mirror. No matter how she tried, she could produce only the slightest noise in the world beyond the glass. Tap, tap, tap. This story is called The Haunting of Bedman's Creek from Scary Stories for a Fright in the Night by S.L. Claytor. 
Wednesday, May 18th. The sun had just touched upon the western horizon as 11-year-old Dylan Smith and his father, Mike, rounded the bend of a sleepy oxbow while river fishing. Moving against a choppy current in a 16-foot john boat, Mike slowed to a trolling speed as they approached the mouth of Dead Man's Creek. It's getting late, Dad. Dylan felt a sudden flood of apprehension. I'd rather not go up to the creek this close to dark. Ominous shadows fell over the entrance of the narrow waterway, cast from overhanging trees that hugged the creek's steep bank. Overgrown shrubs and a canopy of interwoven vines, reminiscent of a jungle, created an illusion of entering a tunnel. We won't go far, just to the old bridge, Mike headed into the creek, despite his son's reservations, dodging branches that crowded the gloomy passageway. This creek is creepy at night. Dylan ducked to avoid a large spider web that stretched the width of the creek. That was close. He glanced back. That is one big spider. A golden silk orb weaver, Mike told him. A banana spider. Consumed by a sense of dread, Dylan sat down next to his dad and stared at the eerie view ahead, tuning in on the forlorn hoot of an owl in the near distance. It's getting cold. He shivered, suddenly aware of a drastic drop in temperature, and rubbed his arms to brush off the unexpected chill. This is weird for this time of year. His breath fogged when he spoke. Glancing up at the treetops that swayed to a doleful moan, Dylan's uneasiness turned into utter fear when a faint, drawn-out whisper emanated from the woodsy bank on his left and rode on a gust of wind. One. The word was distinct, posing a cold, unearthly tone. Did you hear that? I think someone's watching us. Dylan visually searched the dark bank, pretty sure he detected movement, but it was hard to distinguish what was there, what might be looking back. I didn't hear anything. Mike showed no concern. There are a lot of animals scurrying around these woods. Squirrels, raccoons, armadillos. He maneuvered the boat past a fallen cabbage palm that half blocked the waterway. It wasn't an animal. No one can convince Dylan otherwise. He was certain of what he'd heard and feared that someone or something other than a forest animal was following them along that shadowy bank. Let's turn around, Dad, please. I have a feeling something bad is about to happen. Don't be ridiculous, Dylan. There's nothing in these woods at night that isn't here during the day. Mike kept going. I told you, we'll go as far as the old bridge. Reaching the widest point of the creek known as Blind Bend, where the waterway ballooned to a span of at least 30 feet, the creek made a sharp left turn before bottlenecking back into its original narrow course. I heard a whisper, Dad. Dylan divulged exactly what he'd heard. It wasn't an animal. It didn't even sound human. You've fished Bedman's Creek a lot over the years. Have you experienced anything strange? Could it be haunted? You know I don't believe in such nonsense. Mike continued to follow the winding waterway that gradually constricted as they moved deeper inland. What was that? Dylan scrambled to his feet, startled by a loud splash near the bank. Probably an alligator. Mike cut the engine lever to neutral. I'd say it was a big one. 
The small boat rocked in the wake of the splash. Maybe. Dylan visually scanned the bank. Wait, someone's over there. Do you see those two people? He caught sight of two dark, featureless figures that appeared to be children, their silhouetted forms barely perceptible. They look like shadow kids. Before Mike could respond, the two figures faded away, disappearing into the dark, shadow-laden surroundings. Dylan then heard a second whisper, only this time there were two disembodied voices riding on a gust of wind. The drawn-out word was faint but clear. Dylan's blood ran cold. You must have heard that. He didn't understand how his father could remain so calm. I heard something, Mike admitted. Probably just the wind blowing through the trees. There's always a logical explanation. It wasn't the wind, Dad. There are strange shadow kids out here with us. First, one of them whispered one, and just now, right after seeing the two figures on the bank, I heard them whisper two. There are no such things as shadow kids, Dylan. Mike returned the drifting boat to idle speed and continued along their serpentine course. Please, Dad, we need to get out of here. Dylan feared a point of no return, afraid that every inch they continued to move along that haunted creek lessened their chances of escaping. At that moment, the silhouetted beings appeared a third time on the bank, next to the remnants of an old dock. The Shadow Kids are back, and now there's three of them, Dylan alerted his dad. Three. The Shadow Kids' voices simultaneously chimed a third, drawn-out whisper that caused Dylan to shudder with fear. Mike glanced toward the bank. The wind is really howling, making some strange sounds. That was not the wind. It's the shadow kids, and this time, they said three. You're making me jumpy with all of this nonsense, Mike continued along their course. Why won't you believe me? They're following us along the bank right now. Look, Dad, can't you see them? Dylan pointed. Please tell me you see them. Stop it, Dylan. What you're seeing is nothing more than a play of light and shadows. You're seeing things that aren't there. Mike kept his eyes peeled on the course ahead. We're just about at the bridge. We'll do a little fishing and then we'll head back. Dylan watched in paralyzing fear as the three shadow kids continued to follow along the bank, his heart pounding harder and faster as Mike steered the boat towards an old wooden bridge. Well, we made it. Toss me that rope and I'll tie the boat off. Mike pointed toward the bow. He shut off the boat motor and waited while the swift moving current carried them beneath the structure. Upon exiting the opposite side of the bridge, he quickly lassoed across the port and secured the boat in place. They're watching us, Dad. Dylan broke his momentary silence. Right there. He pointed toward the bank. They want something. We're not going to get any fishing done until I prove to you that there's nothing over there. Mike reached into the storage compartment and pulled out a spotlight, shining its bright beam of light onto the bank. He immediately drew in a quick breath. What are those things? He stammered in disbelief. I'm sorry, Dylan. I should have believed you. I see them now. We need to get out of here and fast. Dylan stressed the urgency. If it's not already too late. Mike quickly untied the boat and started the motor. 
I don't know what those things are, but we're not sticking around a minute longer to find out. Hold on tight. We're getting out of here. Speeding away, Dylan's blood turned icy cold when a fourth shadow kid suddenly materialized on the top of the bridge and glared down at them with glowing red eyes. Hurry, Dad! Dylan yelled, overcome by the worst fear he had ever experienced when the menacing figure roared the word four and bolted from the bridge, joining the other three shadow kids in pursuit along the bank. They're chasing us. There's four of them now. It didn't take long to reach the remnants of the old dock, where once again, a menacing whisper echoed from the bank. Three. The ominous word rang louder and deeper than before. The hair on the back of Dylan's neck stood on end. They're getting closer. Mike expertly maneuvered the boat along the narrow, twisting course at a remarkable speed, but the shadow kids continued to close in on them in aggressive pursuit. A second ghastly whisper drifted from the woodsy bank as they neared blind bend. Hurry, Dad! Dylan watched in terror as the shadow kids shape-shifted from human-like forms to monster-like forms. They're catching up with us, and they're definitely not human. He kept his eyes peeled on what were no longer shadow kids, but shadow creatures. Mike struggled to maintain speed and control against a fierce and sudden squall. This windstorm came out of nowhere. They're trying to stop us. Just keep going, Dad. Whatever you do, don't stop. Barely staying ahead of their nightmarish pursuers, Mike had just dodged the fallen cabbage palm that half-blocked the waterway when a third whisper echoed on a howling gust of wind. One. The ghastly whisper was the deepest and most fearsome by far. Dylan watched in horror as the creatures grew closer and closer until practically parallel with the boat. We're not going to make it. His gaze locked on the red-eyed shadow creature, fearing a terrible, inescapable fate. We're almost there. Mike made a mad dash for the mouth of the creek, fighting against the ever-strengthening windstorm. We're not going to make it. Dylan feared that the small boat might overturn at any moment. Now, only mere feet from the mouth of Bedman's Creek, the red-eyed shadow creature released a piercing cry and lunged toward the boat at the exact moment Dylan and Mike exited the waterway. No! Dylan yelled and dove to the floor, thinking this was to be a grisly end for him and his dad. We made it. Mike glanced back at the creek. That thing just exploded into a cloud of black mist, like it struck some invisible barrier. The shadow creatures? They're gone? Dylan got off the floor just in time to spot an oncoming boat. Look out, Dad! Mike immediately cut the engine down to idle speed, watching as a bass boat approached, driven by a man dressed in red and black flannel. As the boat drew nearer, Dylan saw that a second person was on board, trolling from the stern, a blonde-headed boy around his own age of 11, wearing a Nike jacket and a cap. Hello, the man waved as they slowly passed by. Did you have any luck in the creek? Are the fish biting? Stay out of Bedman's Creek, Mike warned the stranger. We barely just escaped some kind of shadow creatures. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. The man laughed. Good joke, trying to keep the good fishing spots to yourself, huh? It's no joke, Mike called out to the man. Trust me, there really are shadow creatures in that creek. 
The man laughed again. You better come up with a better story than shadow creatures if you want to scare people away from the good spots. No, it's the truth, Mike tried to convince the man who continued idling toward the mouth of the creek. Stay out of Bed Man's Creek. If you go in there, you will regret it, he yelled out one final warning. Dylan could hear the man and the boy laughing as they entered the mouth of the creek. You did warn them, Dad. Yeah, Mike sighed. They were warned. He looked at Dylan. They're on their own. We're going home. He shifted their engine into high gear and sped away. As they rode, Dylan wondered what the shadow creatures actually were and why they were haunting Bedman's Creek. It was a dark mystery he knew he would probably never solve because he had no intention of ever entering the mouth of Bedman's Creek again, day or night, never again. The next afternoon, Dylan and his parents were having dinner at the dining room table watching the local news on a TV that was viewable from the family room. Dad? Dylan suddenly dropped his fork. Do you hear that news report? They're talking about two people missing since last night. A man and a boy whose last known location was to fish in the river in a bass boat. Mike stared at the TV, listening as the reporter continued her story and gave a description of the missing man and boy. Eugene Millard was last seen wearing a red and black flannel shirt. His son, Matthew, age 11, was wearing a Nike jacket and cap. If you have any information regarding their whereabouts, please call. Dylan's eyes grew wide when the missing duo's picture appeared on the screen. That's them, Dad. That's the man and the boy we saw yesterday. It sure is, Mike confirmed in low spirits. They should have listened. Your dad told me what happened, Susan, Dylan's mother, said. I never believed in the haunting of Bedman's Creek. Until now. What haunting? Dylan was eager to know. Well, throughout the years, it's been told that four shadow kids inhabit the creek, but they seldom appear to the living, Susan told him. When they do make an appearance, they're heard calling out numbers from various spots along the bank of the river, beginning on the count of one and continuing until a red-eyed creature appears on the count of four. When that final red-eyed creature appears, a chase is initiated, and if their prey is caught before escaping the creek, the victims are snatched through the watery depths and into the netherworld. Why do they count to four? Dylan was curious. According to the legend, it's a game that the Shadow Kids play. They're said to guard four bases that are positioned along the creek, calling out each base as it's passed. Then, when their opponent reaches the fourth base, which is alleged to be the old bridge, the red-eyed shadow creature appears and yells four, setting a cat-and-mouse chase into motion. That's exactly what happened to us. Dylan could hardly believe it was just a game, a horrible, horrifying game. And they almost caught us. Few people have been lucky enough to win that game and survive the haunting of Bedman's Creek, Susan said. I can't imagine the Shadow Kids like to lose. No, probably not. Dylan recalled the fierce predators. We were lucky. Very lucky, Mike concurred. We managed to outrun them, but we were only mere seconds away from being dragged down through the murky water and into the netherworld. Yep, it was a close call. Dylan would never forget that terrifying experience. We played the Shadow Kids game and won. Sadly, I can't say the same for Eugene and Matthew Millard, who apparently weren't so lucky. 
Dylan imagined the duo trapped in a dark, grim netherworld with many other ill-fated victims who preceded them. For, like his mom said, very few people had been lucky enough to win the game and survive the haunting of Ben Man's Creek. Okay, last one. We're going back to the book Ghost 13 Haunting Tales to Tell. This one is called The Old Pond, written by Blaze Hemingway as told by Scott Turley. Samuel picked at his food, the sharp sound of the fork scraping porcelain echoing in the small kitchen. Dinner was a silent affair. The boy's parents rarely spoke these days. Then again, they didn't have to. The signs of grieving carved deeply into their faces did all the talking for them. Though two years his junior, Emily had been in the same grade as Samuel. The year he was held back, Emily skipped. So Samuel had to suffer the humiliation of repeating the fourth grade in his little sister's class. School, like everything else in Emily's life, had come easy for her. Emily was smart. She was beautiful. She was popular. And she never hesitated to remind Samuel that he was none of those things. Emily teased Samuel both day and night, at school and home, in front of friends and family, always finding new ways to embarrass him. But there was one place where Samuel could escape his sister's taunting. One place where Emily floundered and Sam thrived. The old pond. While Samuel would swim every day until winter's chill froze the pond over, Emily kept her distance. Not a strong swimmer, Emily never ventured deeper than into waist-high water. But that was what made her drowning so suspect. What possessed Emily to swim out in the deepest part of the old pond? What was she thinking? Why would she do it? The question lingered. Samuel excused himself from the table and went upstairs. Climbing beneath the woolen covers of his bed, he laid his head to the pillow. Samuel turned to the large window facing the backyard. Through it, the boy could see the moon reflecting on the still water of the old pond, the same way it had the night Emily drowned. The boy shivered, trying to push that horrible memory away. Samuel turned to face the ceiling, holding his stare onto it until his eyelids finally grew heavy and he slowly drifted asleep. It was the sound of splashing that startled Samuel awake. His eyes sprang open and he looked out his window. Ripples of water broke up reflected moonlight on the old pond. Something, or someone, was in there. Curious, Samuel rose from his bed, stumbled down the stairs, and stepped out the back door of the house. A thin mist clawed out of the water towards the boy, forming a path that led Samuel right to the old pond. Samuel slowly walked toward the silent water, over the dew-covered grass that wet his bare feet and the cuffs of his pajama pants. Samuel stopped at the shoreline, watching and listening, carefully, but the splashing had stopped. The old pond was quiet and perfectly still. Samuel turned to look back at the house, and the splashing started again. Samuel slowly craned his head around and spotted ripples in the water. Hello? The boy called out, his voice cracking. Is someone out there? Help me! Help me, Samuel! 
he immediately recognized the voice crying out to him. Emily? The boy squinted, scanning the surface of the pond. Please, Samuel, help me. His sister called to him, voice gurgling as her throat filled with water. Samuel looked far out to the center of the pond where he could faintly see his sister bobbing up and down, flailing and grasping desperately at the surface of water. Instinct took over. Samuel dove into the pond, swimming as quickly as his arms could carry him, stealing glimpses at his struggling sister, making certain she was still there. I've got you! I've got you! Samuel wrapped his arms around Emily as she coughed up pond water and gasped. She was shaken, but alive. Tears rolled down Samuel's face as he gripped tightly to his little sister. Everything's going to be okay, Emily. Everything's okay, said the boy with relief. Samuel started to swim for shore, towing Emily behind him. With every stroke, the guilt the boy carried for months began to dissipate. He had been the one to dare Emily to swim to the middle of the pond. He only wanted to see Emily struggle at something the same way he had struggled with so many other things in his life. Samuel never anticipated that she would drown, but now he was given a second chance. He continued to swim, but his strokes became slower and slower. Samuel's muscles ached. His breathing was strained. Despite his best efforts, he didn't seem to be moving. He was stuck in the dead center of the old pond. Samuel turned to see if he and Emily were caught on something. It was only then that he actually looked at his sister's face, now fully illuminated by the light of the moon. Emily's skin was pale almost translucent. Raised black veins traced her face and neck. Her eyes were black and lifeless. Emily! Emily's mouth curled into a maleficent grin, revealing two rows of long, pointed teeth. With a violent jerk, Samuel was plunged below the water, pulled with the force that he had no chance of resisting. He screamed and flailed, fighting against it with all his might, desperately trying to make his way back to the surface, but he could not. Samuel watched helplessly as the moon's reflection became smaller and smaller, while he sunk deeper and deeper. Finally, the moon disappeared from his sight completely. As a last bubble of air left his lips, he knew he would never again return from the black depths of the old pond. Thank y'all so much for letting your little creatures be a part of our 31 Nights of Halloween. We love doing these stories, and you can expect them to come out every single Saturday during the month of October. Thank y'all so much, and remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.